So bronchiolitis is really an inflammation and ultimately obstruction to some degree of the the lower airways in children, the really, really small airways. And the reason why children get it, especially those under two, is because the lungs don't actually fully develop until a child is about two years old. There's a lot of bigger airways that then get smaller and smaller and smaller as the babies grow. Welcome to the Well Child Podcast. Brought to you by two board-certified pediatricians, Dr. Anna Powell and Dr. Samira Arman, also known as the PD Pals, as we talk to you about topics involving raising well and happy children in today's challenging society. Please follow us on social media at the PD Pals or find us online at www.thepdpals.com. Thank you for joining us for another exciting and educational episode of The Well Child. Today, we are super excited to have Dr. Teresa Scott joining us. Dr. Scott is currently a hospital fellow in New York. For those of you who don't know what that is, it basically means that she completed her training, or as we like to call her residency in pediatrics. That's typically a three-year training that's done after medical school, but she's now specializing further in hospital pediatrics or hospital medicine and will be done her training in 2022. Before that, Dr. Scott was pediatric chief resident and completed her medical school and residency in New York as well. She has received multiple excellence in teaching awards. She has presented and written many research papers. She's also very popular online. She has a great online platform. You can find her on Instagram, which is actually magically how we connected and have been interacting ever since. We are so happy to have her here today to talk to us, woman to woman to woman, uh, about her experience with motherhood, being a pediatrician, hospital medicine, coronavirus, and New York City, and if we have time, bronchiolitis. Um, So welcome, Dr. T. Ah, thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. I did find you guys on Instagram, and it's amazing to become real friends in real life, well, virtual friends in real life, finally. Um, So thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. We saw you on Instagram and we're like, we could definitely be friends with her. She's so (laughs) awesome. But we really appreciate you doing this. And this might date our episode a little bit, but happy National Women's Physicians Day to you. I was going to say, this is the best way to celebrate with other amazing women physicians. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm so curious to know about your journey and your, you know, motherhood and, you know, your training in New York City and how, tell us everything about you. (laughs) Absolutely. So, I mean, briefly, briefly, I was definitely one of those people who always was just kind of saying that they wanted to be a doctor from day one without really understanding what it meant. I came from uh, no other physicians in my family. And so I kind of figured everything out on the fly to some extent. Um, But once I got into medical school and I had to decide what specialty I wanted to choose, I was actually between pediatrics and orthopedic surgery. And I think that gives you a glimpse of kind of the fact that I like a little bit of everything. Um, And now that I look back 10 years later, um, it really actually seems to fit. I'm in a hospital setting working with kids, which is kind of the best of orthopedic surgery and the best of pediatrics. And so in that sense, it is exactly where I'm meant to be. Um, I have been in New York for all of my education, all of my training, and I really don't have plans on leaving. I love it here. And I really decided to pursue hospital medicine once I was like midway through residency. Um, I actually went in thinking pediatrics, I'm probably going to do outpatient medicine. Um, And that's really what most people think of when they hear a pediatrician. Um, But there's so much more to pediatrics that I discovered in residency. And over the course of the past 10 years or so, the field of pediatric hospital medicine or PHM, as we like to call it, has really exploded. And we can talk about reasons why, but um, the the biggest thing that attracted to me what me to the field was the type of medicine and the type of problems that I was seeing in the hospital. I just loved taking care of um, these kids who were pretty sick, um, but not requiring intensive levels of care um, and also not being followed for months and months as an outpatient. And it's usually medical conundrums, right? Like, so you really feel like a diagnostician. I feel like Dr. House, you know, it's really what you have sometimes. 
You're exactly. like, what does this child have? <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think one of the best things about pediatric hospital medicine uh, where I practice in a bigger hospital is that you have so many people from different specialties who you can chat with and pick their brains. And you're not there, there's so much information out there these days. You're not going to know everything right out, right away, right off the top of your head. And so you have these wonderful conversations about your patients and you really collaborate in such a team environment. And it's just a great place to work. Yeah, that's the one thing I miss about that, you know, environment, that educational environment in the hospital, that that was really fun. And I think the other thing that I loved about hospital medicine was that kids are so resilient, they do really recover. And so you see them kind of at their most vulnerable and really, really sick. And then they do get better, most of them, Mm -hmm. you know, and so it's kind of rewarding to see. So I'm sure you, you love that part of your job. Absolutely. I remember being a third year medical student when we first saw inpatient medicine for me for the first time in pediatrics and the kids would look so sick one day and the next day they would be back to their baseline, be back to their normal selves. And you're like, wow, I never thought that you would do what you're doing. And so I think that's one of the best parts about working with pediatrics is that once their energy is back and you help them, they really bounce back so nicely. It's so true. And we don't see, um, for parents, I thought this was kind of an interesting thing to say, but mm-hmm. we don't see fakers that often, um, mm-hmm. you know, have <laughs> to gain. So if, for example, you know, if, if a child is limping, you know, we always will take that full face value. Cause we're like, there's mm-hmm. nothing, they have nothing to gain by doing that. Um, so something must be up because as soon as they feel better, they're just running off and they, exactly. Yeah, so they do not want to be there <laughs> they, as much as we love taking care of them they do not want to be there and so our goal is obviously always to get them out as fast as we can um and as safe as as safe as we can um but i think the bottom line about phm and hospital medicine is just that it's not a nine to five job i take these kids home with me in my head i think about them i love i love um sitting down and trying to connect with parents as soon as possible because you ha- you're, you're in a little bit of a time crunch. There's a little bit of an acuity and you have to make that connection with the family and the patient up front. And you have to be able to um, think on your feet and, and keep going and thinking about them when you go home because because they still need your attention um, when you're on and when you're their, their physician in the hospital. And I, I honestly love that. Some people find that burdensome, but I find it exciting and, and really rewarding. That's, That's great. Awesome. Mom, right? I am a mom. I uh, became a mom back in late 2019, just prior to COVID. And I cannot even begin to tell you, one, how how much you learn about uh, children from motherhood that you don't learn in residency. Um, and, and two, just how um, much having a child has changed me as a physician. Um, yeah. My son was actually in the NICU for 10 days. He was a little early. He needed some help with his sugars, as we like to say. And um, it was one of the hardest things I've ever gone through emotionally. And so it was really, really interesting to see how I changed initially subconsciously. And then I started to realize how I changed as a physician once I was back in the hospital after having him. Um, You are so scared as a parent when your child is in the hospital. And as you know, being pediatricians, kids who are born early almost always have trouble with sugar or breathing or something, eating, something like that. And it, I, I couldn't think straight when it was my son. And so I can't even imagine um, not having that little voice in the back of my mind telling me that it's going to be okay. Um, having no medical uh, foundation to kind of rationalize what you're going through. And so um, it made me, it forced me to slow down and, and realize that when parents are angry or upset, it's not directed at you. It's because there's a fear, there's a concern. It's it's their baby and your, your care and, um, they're trusting you with a lot. And so that really, um, was so opening to me. And, um, I'm so, my my son is fine now and I'm so thankful to have had that experience because I really think it helped me be a better doctor. I totally agree. One of the things that I stopped saying after I became a mom was it's nothing. Because it's always something to you as a parent, right? So now I say it's nothing to worry about, which is a much more soothing exactly uh, as opposed to saying it's nothing. And I never meant it in a, a, eh, it's nothing, like a blowing off type of way. But you're just so much more cognizant Mm -hmm. when you become a parent suddenly of all those emotions. And and like you said, Mm -hmm. and not thinking straight when it comes to your own child. I'm not 
like you though, in the sense that I think my medical knowledge hinders me. I always think the worst case scenario. I'll be oh, like, trust oh. me, I was there too. <laughs> His um, umbilical cord didn't fall off for like six weeks, and I was like, oh my Who's gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, so, <laughs> yeah, but I also called my pediatrician when he was like four and a half weeks because he had a temperature of 100.3, and my pediatrician was like, that's not a temperature, Teresa. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I know, but it's, it's also not. So, so I get it. This is what you call the <laughs> occupational hazard, right? Yes, <laughs> you know absolutely. too much. And so, absolutely. But it's really, it's really good though. This is a prime example what, that parents shouldn't feel guilty mm-hmm. about not being mm-hmm. able to think right because you have two pediatricians yeah. here that are telling you you cannot think straight, you know, even mm-hmm. if you're a pediatrician. And so yeah. that's really, I think we'll be encouraging for our listeners to hear that, Absolutely. leave it to the professionals, trust yeah. them, trust your mommy gut and, and tell them, you know, uh, what you're, what you're seeing. Um, so yeah. that's really, one really- of my favorite things ever since I was like a pediatrician and kind of getting to the age of having kids and my friends having kids. Um, I've had obviously several people you probably have had to ask you about something that they thought was wrong with their child. And they always ask, when should I talk to the doctor? And I said, and I, I always say, if you're thinking about talking to the doctor or talking to your pediatrician, talk to your pediatrician. If you're thinking of going to the emergency room, go to the emergency room. I would always, as someone who works 24 hour shifts in the hospital, would rather you come in at three o'clock in the morning and let me take a look at your child than have you worrying at home, trying to get in touch with the on-call doctor or whatever it may be. Um, when you think you need to ask about seeing a doctor is when you should go just talk to your doctor or That's go to see a doctor. Such great advice. Yeah. I'm going to keep that one. Cause that is so true. The way I think mm-hmm. is that, I thought of it another way, but I love what, what you said. I think that's a really good advice for parents. But for me, it was more from a doctor's standpoint. Um, even though a lot of times when parents bring something up to you, it doesn't amount to anything. If you really, it's, you know, if you really listen to what they're saying or what they're worried about and take it at face value, it, most parents are not dying to have their kids undergo testing or whatnot. No. So if they're thinking like, I need this to feel better or to sleep better at night. I think that's what sets aside a good doctor from a great doctor, because if you do listen and indulge, you actually end up being really surprised and finding out that their instinct was often right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that you get a lot of that in the hospital too sometimes. And um, if you are a parent who has a child in the hospital and you're listening or you've ever been in that experience, especially an academic center where things move and you see the, the team, the, the doctor, the rounds um, come into your room for 10 minutes, um, you could have a laundry list of questions. And I always want to empower my patients and their families to feel like if they need to talk more, write down your questions and let me know. And I will come back after rounds. Like I just, for the flow of the work, I have to see you in 10 minutes in the morning, but I am always happy to come back because that will probably save me 10 minutes tomorrow morning. And so I think that that's so important that you are able to have that connection with your doctor. And, um, if you don't have that connection, it's just something to be aware of. And and I'm not saying you have to find a new doctor, but just find a way to feel like you're being heard because that is the most important thing when it comes to caring for your child. I totally agree. That connection between doctor and patient is so important. Yeah. There's no stupid question, right? There's no, that's really inspiring, you know, coming from you specifically because you see kids at their most vulnerable state in the hospital. So yeah, um, I was just curious, how old did you say your baby was? He's now 13 months. Oh my goodness. So he's walking, going everywhere. <laughs> so I'm just curious, how was that like being a new mom and the pandemic and this whole year <laughs> and being in New York? Um, I'm just curious. It was, yeah. <laughs> it was crazy. Um, I, I have to say I was the, probably the most fortunate of any situation I could have been in. I came back from my maternity leave like March 16th and March 18th, New York City, New York State basically shut down. And so I was physically in work for a day and a half. My child went to daycare for a day and a half. And then I was during, it was during my chief year. And so I was considered non-essential for the most part in terms of being able to work from home. And so I actually spent the remainder of my chief year about another three months working from home and going in maybe once every other week or so. 
And so um, in that sense, it was wonderful because I had extra time with my baby. Um, but it was also just obviously devastating to the medical community, to the hospital. Um, we had pediatricians, um, not necessarily in my hospital, but in a lot of other places, especially in New York City, um, pediatricians working in adult ICUs, um, adult patients coming to the pediatric floor, entire pediatric ICUs, like a very specialized level of pediatric critical care shutting down so that adults could take up the space. Um, it was partially a blessing in pediatrics that children were not affected the way that adults were back in the beginning of the pandemic, but um, our pediatricians felt it for many, many ways. Um, and we saw a lot of repercussions in the pediatric world three to four months after COVID started. So many missed vaccinations, as you probably saw in the outpatient world, so many um, just delayed follow-ups and, and lost to follow-up. And uh, it was really, really hard for the pediatric world to kind of regroup and figure out a way to not only move forward, but also catch up on everything that was missed for the first three or four months of the pandemic. Um, but that being said, we're slowly marching towards normal, but we still have a ways to go before um, we kind of get back to the way things were. And they probably will never go back to the way things were um, pre, pre-COVID, but um, it, was, it was devastating in multiple ways to the medical community, including the pediatricians. I totally agree. Yeah. Very well said. It was very devastating. And you're right, the missed vaccinations and the missed follow-ups and then trying to see double the volume once things started to get back, but then also be safe in doing so. I was going to say, yeah, trying, you know, double the volume is double the exposure. And so it's, it's really, really challenging. Um, And honestly in the hospital, so I I went back to clinical work full-time in July. And so things were better, a lot better in New York by then. Um, But it was different. Um, the pediatric census in the hospital, so the, the amount of patients that we saw on a day-to-day basis was probably cut in half um, in a very across-the-board way of multiple hospitals, not just at the one that I was uh, work, that I worked in. Um, they had very different patient um, acuity or patient problems that they were coming in for. Um, they were sicker because often people were waiting at home longer before they sought medical care. And so it was a very, very different um, world that I came back to in the hospital. And so that was very eye-opening and it's still, again, not really back to, to baseline. So one thing we know for sure is that, you know, respiratory illnesses really improve. We've, we've yet to see a single case of the flu, myself and Anna. Mm-hmm. Uh, the flu, I don't even know what the flu is. I haven't seen hand, foot, and mouth since last year. <laughs> yes. Yeah, uh, but the, the trauma increased a whole ton, right? Because people mm-hmm. were home more and the kids were bouncing off the walls and bonking mm-hmm. their heads. So I'm sure mm-hmm. you saw that. Did you notice anything else? We actually saw a lot of psycholo- psychological or psychiatric yeah. cases. Yeah. Um, very, very sad. A lot of what we what is called conversion disorder or psychosomatic disorders where the body uh, has a somatic or a bodily response to just undue anxiety, stress. Um, and often it came in as a presentation of either anorexia, like a new onset anorexia or an exacerbation of somebody who was in control of their anorexia. And now they, they kind of relapsed. Um, We saw a lot of kids, teenagers who um, suddenly were unable to walk. And that's something called a conversion disorder where uh, they, they just, essentially have this, um, like I said, the way their body processes the stress and they, instead of having an upset stomach, they just lose their ability to walk and have a lot of trouble getting back. Um, and so it's a very difficult thing to manage because you want to make sure you're not missing a primary neurological condition or a primary stomach condition. Um, and you have to do a thorough workup before you can say, I think this is all due to anxiety, or I think this is all due to your body's inability to handle this overwhelming amount of stress. Um, And so that was probably a large majority of my census, my patients that I saw, um, especially over the summer when kids were like worried about getting back to school and worried about seeing their friends or not seeing their friends and just having no structure for the past almost six months. Yeah, we're we're noticing something very similar in the outpatient Mm -hmm. setting. Um, the increased mental illness, as uh, anxiety, depression, 
um, is just through the roof. I think I'm seeing someone uh, suffering from that almost daily. Um, mm-hmm. So it's definitely hit kids as hard as it's hit adults, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that's another reason we wanted to do this is because we wanted to talk about just wellness in children and how we can manage all these, all these areas, not just, you know, physical health, but mental health yeah. and, um, and everything that comes with it, you know? So um, I was curious, did you see a few months after um, the lockdown happened, did you see a lot of the complicated uh, complications that arose uh, due to COVID in children. We had a mm-hmm. podcast recently talking about MISC, mm-hmm. the multi-inflammatory syndrome. Did you see that in your hospitals? Yes, it was actually. So um, in New York City, there's a few primary children's hospitals. And um, one of the hospitals that I work at uh, was almost the epicenter for that. And they described the like almost majority of the cases that initially presented, they came up with a protocol and um, tried to have some collaboration with other pediatricians from across the area, across the country to, to really define what this is and how we can treat it. And um, it was really, it's really scary. It's really scary to, for the first time ever and probably all of our careers really not know what we're dealing with and what the repercussions are. And so um, thankfully we now have a much better handle on it as soon, as soon as we suspect it in the emergency room, um, fever, rash, any of there's like a whole laundry list of symptoms that most people will qualify for. We work up this entire pathway. It's primary, primarily blood work that we get. So we're already probably going to be drawing blood anyway. Um, and we're much better able to, cross it off our list earlier on than we were back four, five, six months ago. And so, um, again, it just kind of harps on the fact that if you're concerned as a parent about whether your child has something that's a sequelae from COVID, don't hesitate to ask. You will always be better off asking than waiting because it can be devastating. Um, and thankfully, we really do have a good treatment for it now, or at least better understanding of it. Yeah, that's really interesting Um, because, you know, as a doctor, too, it's really hard to guide a patient or a parent uh, whose child has had COVID. I try to tell them uh, about, you know, what to look for, you know, in two to six weeks. And then, like you just Mm -hmm. said, there's a laundry list. I'm like, it's a long list. Yeah. Like if they have a fever, a rash, if they start acting sick again, lethargic or anything, anything really, anything at all. <laughs> just, yeah, exactly. Anything. That's, that's what it comes down to. That's what I mean. Like you can never be overly yeah. cautious if you have, and I don't want to send, you know, make people panic, but like fever and vomiting, fever and rash. Like you'll, if you hit enough of these check boxes and you end up in the emergency room, we'll probably draw what we call the misty labs on your child and, and check for it because it's, it's, always risk versus benefit in medicine and the risk of drawing some extra blood work is always better. The the risk of asking is always better than not in, in this situation. Um, and so, so never hesitate to do that. <laughs> yeah. It gets so confusing because now kids are back in school and daycare. And so you're seeing some of those other common viral illnesses. And so it's so hard. We're trying to follow up with all of our patients, you know, that have had COVID that have been positive or, or uh, been exposed to someone to try to catch it. But, but yeah, just anything you notice out of the ordinary, you know, talk to your people. It's worth it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we actually in New York city, at least haven't really been seeing a lot of these viruses. I think New York city um, is still mostly a hybrid system in terms of schooling. And so a lot of kids are still honestly working from home. And uh, these classic things that we, classic viral illnesses that we would fill our hospitals with in the wintertime, we just haven't been seeing at all. I mean, not a single bronchiolitis, a single respiratory infection that I've had. I was just on service for two weeks and I didn't have a single one, which is mind blowing. <laughs> um, completely changes the way that uh our hospitals are running right now. It's really, really interesting. It is. And it's, I'm so also interested to know, you know, what we're going to, what does this mean for the future? The fact that kids haven't been exposed, are they going to be stronger later? Cause we've given everyone's immune system a good rest and now they're ready. You know, if something comes their way or is it the opposite, they haven't been exposed or challenged in over a year and then now they're going to go back potentially at some point remove masks and what what's going to happen at that point 
or, you know, is hand, foot, mouth going to just go away because they're not giving it to each other anymore. So where did it go? It's hiding, you know, so <laughs> where did flu go? I still don't know where flu went. If flu wants to, I mean, I don't want flu to come back, but if, uh, if I could just find out where it went, maybe we could just yes. keep it there. Right. Right. So it's going to be really interesting to see what the pandemic infectious disease is going to look like. Yeah. I mean, I I think in the hospital to some degree, I think I'm going to be so much more inclined to just put a mask on. I'm used to it at this point. And I used to be much more reluctant to put it on. I thought it was more of a nuisance, more frustrating, annoying. I couldn't connect with my patients as well, but it works. It clearly works. And so, um, if there's anything that I will change personally about my practice, it is probably that. Um, and I, I wouldn't even be surprised if I, you know, I'm on a plane in the middle of winter, maybe I would wear a mask too. Um, again, these masks that we wear now are primarily to prevent us from spreading infections to others, but it, it does go both ways at least a little bit. And so it's worth, it's worth thinking about if you're going to be in certain situations um, and you don't want to get sick. I totally agree. Now, I have a question for both of you, actually, now that you brought that totally veering off topic, but that's okay. That's what makes a good conversation. So the question is, you're both, I'm assuming, Dr. Scott, that you're vaccinated too or close to being mm-hmm. vaccinated? Yes. Okay. So yes. at what point will you feel comfortable taking it off for even a few minutes? Because like, I have not mm-hmm. been brave enough to do that in clinic. No, I haven't. And I, I think you know, a lot of people still ask me that question, you know, are you, you're vaccinated while you're still wearing a mask? And I think the data just isn't there yet. It makes sense that eventually if enough people get the vaccine, you don't have to wear a mask because we don't wear masks for other um, things that we're vaccinated against because the vaccine works. Um, And I think right now the question is just, are you still able to carry and transmit the virus if you are vaccinated? And I'm living with my son and my husband who are not vaccinated. And so I think until they are vaccinated um, and my close family and most of my interactions and people I interact with are vaccinated, I will probably continue to wear the mask. Um, Thankfully, most of my family is willing to, or, you know, wanting to get the vaccine, um, in New York right now, there's still, um, limited supply in terms of the, the requirements to getting the vaccine. So, um, hopefully by the summer, maybe we'll have more people that I'm close with vaccinated at home. And that will be really nice. <laughs> no, I totally, I totally agree with that sentiment. I think it's, uh, it's a risk benefit analysis. And I think if I have to wear the mask a little bit longer to protect, you know, my mom, my family around Mm me, um, my patients too, I think that was my biggest concern in the beginning. I didn't Mm want to be that asymptomatic carrier. And even though we think that there's low transmission, you know, if you're asymptomatic and you're, and you're potentially carrying the virus, we still, like you said, don't have enough data. And so I would rather just play, be more cautious. Um, so I think until I see the numbers in our community go down significantly, um, until, uh, most people are vaccinated or getting close to being, um, I think I would just rather (laughs) play it really safe. I was going to say, and speaking of paranoid mom or whatever, I can't tell you how many times, even over the last year, I've had my morning coffee and I'm like, wait, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Did I taste that? (laughs) Hold on. Absolutely. Or like give a little tickle and you're just not sure if it's going to turn into something. And then I'm like, do I not see my child for the next 24 hours until this declares itself? Yeah, it's, it's going to be really nice to not have to have that thought process every time something changes. Um, But I think that just because we're around kids until the kids are able to get the vaccine, I think that that's also a reason, all the more reason for us to just keep wearing masks. Yeah, I have a funny story. When I went for my N95 fitting, you know, they uh, spray the little smell. And so, you know, you have that freak moment if you don't smell it. So I think we're, we're all on edge. And so until we feel better about this, I don't think any of these frontline workers are going to take that leap. You know, I'm sorry. I have a funny story. I'm about to out you. (laughs) He always does. It's okay. (laughs) I'm going to have to tell you this, Teresa. She came um, to me in clinic mid COVID and (laughs) and said, um, oh, crud, I'm going to start laughing now. It's not good. But she started saying, like, I have some numbness in my side, in my flank. And have you heard of COVID causing any kind of dermatomal numbness, like, on the side? And And she's like, I have a mosquito bite. And it's, like, all numb everywhere. Anyway, lo and behold, she had shingles. (laughs) 
Oh my goodness. Well, I hold up while we're sharing stories. I have an even funny, well, not even funnier, not to one up everybody, but just another funny story related to this, because as you may know, the COVID vaccine is very, what we call immunogenic, meaning it creates a really robust immune response where you may have fevers, chills. I've never had a reaction to any vaccine in my life. I get the flu shot every year and I felt pretty crappy after. Um, So after the first vaccine, I happened to get it. I was doing an overnight shift and I got it at like midnight and I woke up the next day and I had like muscle aches everywhere. I was so sore. And as I'm like starting to get up and, and like go through the day, I realized my abs were sore. And I was like, there's no way my abs are sore from the COVID vaccine. And then I like thought through it a little bit more. And I was like, oh my God, I did a really hard workout at the gym. And I think this is all just from the gym. <laughs> and so I think that like, it just gets to you. And it's just the level of how much this has been ingrained in our brains right now that um, everything that's off, anything that's off, you're just like, is this COVID? Is this from the vaccine? Is it? And, and it's normal, but it's also kind of ironic and kind of funny. It's got to laugh at I'm guilty of the same. I got, so my first dose of the COVID vaccine, I was fine. And again, doctors are probably amongst the most vaccinated individuals. Mm-hmm. I had to get an MMR booster a couple of years ago. That's mm-hmm. measles, yeah. mumps, and rubella. That's a live virus vaccine that if there's a virus or if there's a vaccine that's going to give you a reaction, that would actually be it. Nothing. It didn't, nothing happened, right? <laughs> At pediatricians, we get exposed before COVID to germs all day, every day. So we have, we generally tend to have pretty good immune systems. And I got my second vaccine dose. Anna had warned me. My other partner had warned me. Might want to take the next day off. I woke up 12 hours later. I was like, oh yeah, here it is. I don't feel so good. And little achy chills, whatnot. A few hours later, I was like, I couldn't even move. Like I, I, I crawled to my bathroom, was by myself. I crawled on my hands and knees, got the thermometer and put it on me. And it started to like beat like, like a siren. Yeah, and it was a 105. And I was like, do adults oh my gosh. get a 105? <laughs> yeah. And so I got so paranoid. She's laughing, but it's true. I got so paranoid. I'm like, I must have COVID. Right. Like and I must have done something wrong. Yeah, <laughs> and I was like, wrong. I must be that person, you know, you hear about yeah. them on the news that they get the vaccine and they accidentally had COVID at the same time. So I went okay. and I got mm-hmm. tested. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I must, I must have it. This is not, this cannot be the vaccine. Oh my gosh. I'm like half dead. And I didn't. Oh have my it. gosh. Oh my gosh. I will. I'm saying, I'm so happy that you didn't get it. And I'm so happy you have the vaccine, but I understand that sentiment and I understand how scary it is. I'm not going to lie. I was reluctant. I was reluctant. I was nervous. I had reservations about getting the vaccine. I applaud anybody who was in the medical world and was like, give me this vaccine today. But I, was not going to sign up on day one. And I think that that's okay. I think it's fine as a parent, as a a patient to question whether or not you should get the vaccine and talk to your doctor and, and really tease out why you're concerned about it. And I did that. I actually talked to one of my friends who's a allergy immunology specialist. And I was like, why is the vaccine so immunogenic? What am I missing? Why am I sure that there's not going to be something down the road. And we talked through it and, and it reassured me in a way that I felt comfortable getting it about two weeks after it was, um, open to my hospital. And so I think that that's fine. And I think that that's, that's the foundation of medicine is that you have to trust the experts who have done their training because you are not the expert. I am not an immunology expert and I am not a PhD researcher who designed this vaccine and I can understand some of the science, but I also think that it's okay to question it and you just have to ask the right questions. And then place the trust. I think that's such great advice. The trust is a Mm -hmm. huge part. Are you talking to someone who you actually trust the answer Mm -hmm. that they'll give you? And then Mm -hmm. ask yourself what it is exactly that you are reluctant to, to, you know, accept. And I think another really important thing too, and we talked about this, we actually did a podcast a couple of weeks ago on MISC and COVID, but it's really, really important to know nothing is risk-free. Nobody is claiming vaccines are 100%. There's no such thing. There's nothing Mm -hmm. in the world, you know, just walking to your kitchen in three minutes, you could, you could 
you have a chance of like slipping Absolutely. and breaking something. Yes. So it, everything has a risk. You just have to decide if that risk is worth taking in your particular Absolutely. environment. So, yeah. yeah. And it was really interesting because I actually heard one of my attendings talking about um, something that related to this and and she was essentially saying like, I ask my patients to place their trust in me every single day. I do things to patients and their children who their parents have never heard of their entire lives. And I'm asking them to trust me that this is the right thing to do. And once I kind of heard her phrase it like that, I was like, okay, yeah, I need to trust the the medical experts, my colleagues who developed this vaccine and know so much more about it than I do. Um, And I can't tell you the amount of relief that I felt after because I take the subway to work every day and sometimes it's crowded and I, I, I feel much better now that I have this vaccine. And so, so yeah, I think that that's such a a key foundation to good medical care, to trusting your physician, to, um, you know, really having informed decision-making capabilities. Yeah. And I think beyond just vaccine, every medical decision we make, we're weighing the risk and the benefit of everything. Uh, When we take antibiotics for an infection or, you know, what type of diet we recommend. I mean, everything Mm -hmm. requires that. And so sometimes there's a lot of scrutiny on this because this is the talk of the town, you know, but these are decisions we're making every day. And so I think Mm -hmm. it's important for parents to be engaged with their, with their doctor and to ask these questions, not just about the vaccines, but everything, every decision is risk benefit. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a great way to approach it, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that that's like going back into the hospital medicine world, this this conversation itself took 10 minutes just to talk about our concerns as physicians. And so this is why you need to write your questions down if you're in the hospital as a parent. You need to express reservations if you don't fully understand something. Ask for a translator. The number of times I use a translator is like, five times a day, sometimes in the hospital. And so um, don't ever be afraid to, to ask for that extra clarification. It's so important. So even though we don't, we're not seeing it very much or you're not seeing it very much, I was hoping we could touch a little bit on bronchiolitis. So our parents oh, yeah. and our listeners could be educated about that. Like, what is it? What, what does mm-hmm. it look like? And when should parents seek help? Absolutely. So bronchiolitis is one of the most common things that we used to see pre-COVID in the hospital as pediatric hospitalists. And what it is, is really an inflammation um, and ultimately obstruction to some degree of the the lower airways in children, the really, really small airways. Um, And the reason why children get it, especially those under two, is because the lungs don't actually fully develop until a child is about two years old. There's a lot of bigger airways that then get smaller and smaller and smaller as the babies grow and the children grow. And because they're not fully developed, any sort of viral infection that causes inflammation and mucus plugs those airways and makes it difficult to breathe. And so it could be, let's say the rhinovirus, which is a very common cause of the cold. Uh, In an adult, you just get a runny nose and maybe a little cough, but in a kid, you may get um, much more inflammation in the airways that causes a lot of difficulty breathing. And so Often an older sibling will bring home the virus to a baby and baby starts off with a little bit of cough, a little bit of congestion, and over the course of two or three, four days starts to develop trouble breathing. And that can be hard to describe sometimes, but really it's when the the ribs look like they're pulling to get air in, when the ribs are moving up and down so fast because the baby's taking so many short little breaths. Um, sometimes you'll see the nose kind of flaring going in and out um, because the air is going in and out so quickly. And so that's the thing that usually prompts parents to come to the hospital. And um, when a child needs to be admitted for bronchiolitis, it can be for a lot of different reasons, including just observation. Because when you're breathing 60, 70 times a minute, sometimes you tire out and you need a little bit more help. And that's where the hospitalist can come in and give you um, a little bit of oxygen, a little bit of pressure, depending on what you need um, to help your baby or your help the baby's lungs relax a little bit um, and take some of that work of breathing away from them so that they can recover and um, ultimately slow down and and get um, better. 
Yeah, that was very beautifully said. And I think explained because um, this uh, bronchiolitis really is something that's frightening to parents because children, <laughs> terrifying. you know, it's, it's, it, yeah, it's horrible, especially if you've seen it firsthand, um, not having that certainty if, if the child can get it, it's, it's very terrifying. I was just curious um, if you could tell our listeners about RSV, because that's something they hear out about a lot. Yeah. And uh, what makes RSV um, kind of one of these famous viruses that causes bronchiolitis and, and makes mm-hmm. kids really sick to where they need to go to the hospital sometimes? Yeah, RSV, it's, so it stands for respiratory syncytial virus, and it is a virus that really hits kids hard because of its pathogenicity or the way that it infects cells. And so it actually has a almost a twofold mechanism where it directly affects and goes into the cells that line the airway. And it also causes a really bad inflammatory response, which basically causes swelling and mucus production and um, edema or puffiness of the airways that causes that obstruction to some degree and makes it really, really hard to breathe. Um, Again, it doesn't really have that impact on adults, mainly because our airways are bigger and more developed, but the kids just really get hit hard so by it and so hard by it. Um, And one of the most frustrating things about RSV is that there's no vaccine. Um, There's a a very small subset of patients who can get something that might help them if they're premature, but that's a totally separate story. For most kids, there's nothing that we can do to prevent it. You can get it more than once. And if you have a predisposition to asthma or you've had it once and you've had some little bit of lung damage, you can get it again and have a lot of trouble with it. So it's a really frustrating thing to work with. And Aside from not having a vaccine, there's also no real treatment for it. Um, So many studies have been done to see if things like nebulizers or saline or mist or banging on the chest, what we call chest PT, chest physiotherapy, if there's anything that actually helps. And the short answer is not really. And so time and patience and um, again, just kind of trusting your medical providers that they're watching closely, watching for the right things, and will know when to step in. Um, and that's that's really the hard part about RSV. Um, we've learned a lot about RSV over the past several decades. Um, one thing that can be reassuring is that it, not reassuring, but maybe helpful as parents is that it usually is worst around day seven or so. And so um, sometimes kids get to the hospital on day four or five and they they get worse before they get better. Um, but in a way that's reassuring to me that, okay, we're, we're hitting the peak. This is going to be the worst. And tomorrow, the next day, we really should start to see the kid turn around. And so we know a lot, but we still have a lot of work to do with RSV. That's very fascinating. So I do actually have a have a question because I'm curious if things have changed since I've done my training. But back in the day when babies were would get RSV, specifically in the first year of life, we used mm-hmm. to say that they would have a predisposition. So they would be more likely to wheeze uh, in the next couple of years, but they didn't necessarily have more of a risk of developing asthma. Has that changed? Is that the same? That's generally the same sense. Um, if, if you have that type of immune response to a viral pathogen and you have that insult to your lungs, you may have similar episodes in the future. And that generally is what we see. Sometimes if you have a, a kid who's in his first or second year of life and they're in the hospital for breathing problems without a formal diagnosis of asthma, you'll get a history that, oh, they had RSV two times when they were younger. And, and now this is his third time here. And we know the drill, just have to wait here a couple of days and he'll get better. So yes, absolutely. I think that that still holds true. And um, sometimes it's reassuring to know that, that this is expected. Um, and close follow-up is really the most important thing once they, you get out of the hospital. Yes. But also really important to mention that although RSV can do that, Actually, most cases, the the children do just fine. So if an adult or an older child gets RSV, they act like they have the common cold. And a lot of times I'll, you know, Anna and I will be diagnosing a baby in the clinic with RSV and parents have heard about the complications that can happen with RSV and they get really scared. It's very rare that they actually end up in the hospital, but it is good to know what to look for. And know that exactly. if you're worried about the way that they're breathing in any way, it's like you said, if you have that gut to call your doctor or to take this to the ear, just go ahead and do it. It's better safe than sorry. 
Absolutely. And I definitely have a warped perception because I only see the kids who end up in the hospital. And so it's like, oh, of course, not everybody who gets RSV ends up hospitalized. Um, but that is certainly what I see a lot. And if you go to any pediatric hospital and your child is admitted for RSV, it is something that we see so much during our training um, and practice in real life after training. Yeah, sometimes the only reason we even test for it in the office so that we can give parents a timeline mm-hmm. or a guideline of when to look for these symptoms, when is it going to get worse? Because as you mentioned earlier, since it's a virus, uh, you know, antibiotics don't help treat it, um, steroids don't help treat it, and, uh, and so that's the frustrating part. And so sometimes checking for these viruses, you know, they're going to run their course, and most of them do just fine. But um, that one in particular, since people get really nervous about it, sometimes it's nice to have that insight um, so you can tell them, hey, you know, during these days of the peak, this is what you need to really be looking for. Exactly. And I I think that most people haven't heard of it before. I don't know if I necessarily heard of it before I was in the medical world in pediatrics. And um, it's just one of those things that it's good to kind of be aware of. And um, there's not much you can do about it. Wash your hands, take our normal precautions. But um, most kids do just fine with it. And I think just basic care, I don't know if you both agree with me or not, but if your baby is sick and say you have the diagnosis of RSV, or maybe you don't even have the diagnosis, but you have a upper respiratory type of infection, as a parent, treat the fever, suction, suction, suction. RSV likes to make a lot, a lot of mucus. Those babies are just like, I feel like oozing out of every orifice, just Mm -hmm. green or not necessarily green, kind of more clearish yellow mucus. So the more you suction them, the more comfortable they are. If you were to go to the hospital, that's what they'd be doing. They'd be suctioning them as much as possible. So use that nose Frida and, and suction them as much as you can and focus on hydration. Cause as I was just going to say that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Cause as you said, they're breathing 60, 70 times a minute. Not only is that tiring, but we lose a lot of fluid that way. So if you can do those things at home, that would be really great. And I don't know if you guys have anything to add on to that. Absolutely. I was going to say the only, sometimes the only other reason why a kid with RSV will get admitted is for dehydration, but not, not because they're having breathing problems, but just because, or they're having a little bit of breathing problems. They don't need help with their breathing, but they're going so fast. They can't really eat very well and they stop having um, great urine output and they need some IV fluids. And so uh, those things go hand in hand. And so um, if, if you're having trouble with one, you may have trouble with the other. And, and that's all the more reason to talk to your doctor about it. Yeah, I think another thing that is dehydration um, when kids get mm-hmm. really sick and like you mentioned, uh, breathe well, and then they just don't feel like eating. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes uh, it's very hard to get them to drink. And that's something we commonly see too. Um, what's your experience been like with uh, kids in the hospital admitted for that? So again, this is something bread and butter we see all of the time. Um, usually it's a stomach bug and they just can't keep up. If you if you don't have your rotavirus vaccine or you are on a cruise ship and you get exposed to norovirus, these are common viruses that can just wreak havoc and kids have no reserve. They, they will quickly um, deplete their resources and need help is the best way I like to phrase it. Um, the best way to start is to try and orally give repletion, give some sort of liquid by mouth. Um, the one thing that I love, um, the one thing I loved learning during residency was what you should give. Um, a lot of people think ginger ale, a lot of people talk about Gatorade and that's okay. It'll give you some sugar, but, um, in the stomach is actually uh, what we call a co-transporter. So uh, a transporter that takes sodium and glucose from the inside of the stomach into the bloodstream. And if you don't have sodium in the fluid that you're giving your child, the glucose will have trouble getting across and vice versa. So if you drink chicken soup or chicken broth that doesn't have glucose, you're not going to get take any glucose that you have in your stomach and bring it into the bloodstream. And if you just drink ginger ale, which has no sodium, you're just going to get glucose and not actually help your sodium levels. And so it's really important to drink something like Pedialyte that is designed to have sodium and glucose and bring both of them from the stomach into the bloodstream, because that's really what you need. And the water will follow after that. That Um, is so so cool. (laughs) Just be very aware of what you're trying to give your child because um, not everything, not all liquids are equal. 
Now, full disclaimer, have you guys ever had Pedialyte before? <laughs> I totally have because I felt like I cannot actually advocate for it unless I have tried it. And it tastes like it tastes like your tears. Wet. It tastes like yeah. salty water. <laughs> um, That's so good. <laughs> yeah, it's not great. Um, but you can, you can mix it with apple juice if your kid likes Gatorade, if your kid likes something sweeter. You can totally mix it with that, and that's fine. But you need the sodium part uh, component to it um, that you won't get in a pure Gatorade yeah. or ginger ale. Or yeah, the popsicles. The Those were great inventions. Popsicles are great. Like popsicles. popsicles. Yeah. Absolutely. Especially when they're vomiting and they have a bad stomach bug and they don't want to drink, you know, cups mm-hmm. and cups of, of Pedialyte. Uh, I think that's a great idea. Flavor it a little bit and freeze it. They usually yeah. love that. So super that's- easy. And then it doesn't go to waste. You can just give small amounts and they suck on it and you're good to go. Yeah. Exactly. Um, what other what other things do you commonly see that you think um, would be good little tips for our parents when they are looking at home, you know, deciding when should they go to the ER or, or what common illnesses should they consider going to the ER for? So after bronchiolitis and dehydration, the two or the most common thing that I probably see is cellulitis, which is essentially a superficial skin infection. And it can be from a larger obvious break in the skin, like a scraper or cut, uh, or it can be from what we call microabrasion, which is just a very small, you can't even see it opening in the skin and the normal bacteria that live on your skin get into the skin a little bit deeper and cause a more significant infection. Majority of these cases, just like dehydration and bronchiolitis can be managed as an outpatient. And often when they come to the hospital, it's for two reasons. One, they already tried an oral antibiotic that is not working and the redness of the area, the infection looks like it's getting worse. Or two, it's just progressing so rapidly. The kid went to bed with a small scrape and woke up and it's the size of their leg. It goes all the way around their leg and there's no way that they should be safely treated as an outpatient. And so that's generally when they come into us for IV antibiotics. And again, thankfully, we have a really good understanding of cellulitis or these skin infections, we know what antibiotics work. And what's actually really cool is that every single hospital has what's called an antibiogram, where they test every single bacteria that has come through their system in a culture and they know what antibiotics it's susceptible to. And so certain hospitals in New York have a much better sensitivity for certain bacteria and specific antibiotics. And the hospital down the road or whatever, maybe 20 miles away, will have a very different antibiotic profile. And so we know very well in our hospital what will work for skin infections. And Usually it's a day or two that you're in the hospital with the IV antibiotics and you follow it clinically. You look to make sure it gets better and then you transition to an oral antibiotic for them to go home on. Um, But that by far is probably one of the most common things I see after bronchiolitis and dehydration. And actually it's probably my favorite thing to treat. I don't know why. It's just really satisfying to see it get better. (laughs) You're you're speaking to our inner nerds too yeah, when you yes. brought up antibiotics. <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's nothing that gets us more excited. <laughs> yeah, no, you like to say <laughs> all this stuff. And for UTIs too, it's really good to know what your uh, local pattern of antibiotic resistance is for the bugs that cause urinary tract infections. Um, and again, it's just such a total nerd thing, but um, it's really interesting to me. <laughs> yes. But also a very good lesson in why you don't want to give antibiotics willy-nilly because this is the type exactly. of stuff that people are constantly trying to stay ahead of infectious mm-hmm. diseases. So humans are constantly trying to be one step ahead of any resistance or any mutation, and it's not easy. And if everyone does exactly. their part, yeah, if everyone does mm-hmm. their part, doesn't overtreat something that doesn't need an antibiotic or does their due diligence when there's a pandemic and tries not to spread it any further, then we have less mutations or we have less resistance and it just kind of all works itself out. Absolutely. And, and again, cellulitis is something that um, we see so commonly. I'm sure you see it so much as an outpatient too. And so uh, it's really nice to know that it's something that we, we have the capability and such a good understanding of to treat. And I and just want to say at this point, because, um, you know, we all know that kids are not little adults, right? And they're, they're very different, their immune system, their bodies are very different. And I think this is a great teaching point for parents, because a lot of times parents will come in and say, 
I have an infection. I went to my doctor. I got these antibiotics. And, and sometimes when your pediatrician says, you know, we're not going to do the same exact thing for your child. It's usually because we're being extra cautious because, um, their immune systems are still growing and we see these resistance and we see kids end up in the hospital where we can't treat their infections. You know, that's why you use that antibiotic gram, you know? Um, and so I think that's a, and, and I know parents get frustrated because they want the child to feel better as do we, but, um, I think this is a good time to, to have that, understanding that we take this decision very carefully, you know, we don't want to create, um, a problem later that we can't fix. And so we're very cautious when we're using antibiotics. Absolutely. I can give a story on this actually, that might help our viewers yeah. or our listeners a little bit, but so my husband and I are both doctors and we, we used to work in the hospital. And so we had the same thing where, you know, you knew very well what type of bacteria was roaming around your hospital and <laughs> what they were susceptible to and what they weren't to. Right. And so we had our second daughter, just the way that it usually goes, was always more sick than the first. And so she had a lot of ear infections. She got tubes. Everything was fine for a while. And then one time she got this draining ear infection. She still had the tube in there that we couldn't we couldn't get better. We tried a couple of rounds of antibiotics, drops, nothing happened. So we sent a culture on the stuff that was coming out of her ear and it was staph and it was MRSA, but it was only susceptible to one antibiotic. It was resistant to everything else. It was only susceptible to Bactrim, which is the type of bacteria that we would see at the hospital a lot. So naturally, we both freaked out. Naturally, we were very upset because we brought this home to her and now it was like five you know, inches from her brain, maybe less. And so, and if this antibiotic didn't work, we were up a creek. We, there, you don't even know, yeah. right? So it's like very scary. It is so scary. And so that's the type of thing I want parents to think about when we're talking about why we don't just give antibiotics here and there. And first of all, because it's probably not going to help and your child was going to get better anyway, but this is the exact situation. You don't want to get to that point, trust me, where there's only one thing that might work. And if it doesn't, then you don't even know what you're going to do. So yeah, I just thought I would share that Absolutely. one. Absolutely. Really yeah, no, that's a great example. And sounds like she's had multiple rounds of antibiotics before. And so you just yeah. never know what you're up against next. And it's best to be conservative in that space. And I think that pediatricians are probably the most likely of all physicians to prescribe an antibiotic when it's necessary. And so if they feel like you need one, it's most likely appropriate. And if they feel like you don't, then you really probably don't. I think we'll be very willing to give it to you if there's any concern that it would be necessary. Totally agree. Yeah. Anna's face right now. (laughs) I know. It's just, I could just, I could just talk to her all day long. (laughs) You really just speak, you speak to our hearts and what we see every day. And so it's been so fun. Um, But I I don't want this conversation to end, but we do, (laughs) but you know, in the interest of time, we would really like to know what your pearls are for parents. If you could pick you know, the top two or three things that you want parents to take home, given all your experience in the hospital. Um, Just curious about what those would be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think my first one is just going back to never hesitate to ask it really, we've heard it all. We've seen mostly all of it. And, and if you have any questions or you think you need to clarify something, just do it um, and, and don't ever hesitate to do that. That's probably the biggest one. Inpatient, outpatient, it doesn't matter. Mom groups are great on Facebook, online, and social media, but you really should go to somebody who you have a long-standing relationship with who can look back at your patient at your child's chart and give you a, a concrete answer. Uh, um, it's so good that we're gonna <laughs> rewind and play again. <laughs> so good. So true. <laughs> um, and then I think um The other things that I would just say (laughs) for parents, um, if you ever have to be in a hospital, um, bring a phone charger uh, because we (laughs) only have one at the nursing station and it can't go to everybody. So please just just don't forget to pack it. If you have one that has an extra long cord, it will probably be even more useful for you. And you may even make some, well, pre-COVID, you may make some family friends, but um, otherwise a phone charger is a great thing to bring to the hospital. (laughs) 
That's really good advice. (laughs) Well, it was so, so nice to have you. I I hope we can do this again sometime. I know you're super busy, but we would love to have you again. I'm sure there's a million other topics that you could educate our listeners about. Where can people find you? Because I'm sure everyone is listening is like, who is this really cool, awesome doctor? And I want to know all about her. (laughs) So I think the best way for parents uh, to reach me is my Instagram at dr.teresa, D-O-T-C-O-R, Teresa, T-H-E-R-E-S-A. I post a lot about pediatric hospital medicine there and my experiences, especially in training and some things that I've been going through and things that I see. Um, And I also have a website which is geared a little bit more towards medical trainees or pediatric residents pediatric fellows who may be interested in hospital medicine and I share some more detailed experiences of my training there but I'm always happy to talk I have so much fun making connections I obviously don't give medical advice over um, social media or the internet but I think it's so great to have um, just a touch point to somebody who's in a hospital setting and kind of maybe able to help walk you through something that you're going through and I'm always happy to talk I love it you're amazing Thank you once again for joining us. um, And we hope to chat with you more in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I had a great time. And I'm, again, excited to chat with you too. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of any other agency, hospital, organization, employer, or company. Assumptions made in the analysis are not reflective of the position of any entity other than the participants. The participants are critically thinking human beings. Therefore, these views are always subject to change, revision, reconsideration, and recalculation at any time. This podcast collaboration makes no warranties or representations as to accuracy, completeness, correctness, suitability, or validity of any information, communication, exchange, and the participants will not be liable for any errors, omissions, or delays in this information, or any losses, injuries, or damages arising from its broadcast dissemination or use. All information is provided on an as-is basis. It is the communication recipient's responsibility to verify any facts.